This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 24 A Tragedy of Two Pence. My relations with the readers of this page have been long and pleasant, but perhaps for that very reason I feel that the time has come when I ought to confess the one great crime of my life. It happened a long time ago, but it is not uncommon for a belated burst of remorse to reveal such dark episodes long after they have occurred. It has nothing to do with the orgies of the Anti-Puritan League. That body is so offensively respectable that a newspaper, in describing it the other day, referred to my friend Mr. Edgar Jepson as Canon Edgar Jepson, and it is believed that similar titles are intended for all of us. No, it is not by the conduct of Archbishop Crane, of Dean Chesterton, of the Reverend James Douglas, of Monsignor Bland, and even of that fine and virile old ecclesiastic, Cardinal Nesbitt, that I wish or rather am driven by my conscience to make this declaration. The crime was committed in solitude and without accomplices. Alone I did it. Let me, with the characteristic thirst of penitence, to get the worst of the confession over. State it first in all its most dreadful and indefensible form. There is at the present moment in a town in Germany, unless he has died of rage on discovering his wrong, a restaurant-keeper to whom I still owe two pence. I last left his open-air restaurant knowing that I owed him two pence. I carried it away under his nose, despite the fact that the nose was decidedly Jewish one. I have never paid him, and it is highly improbable that I ever shall. How did this villainy come to occur in a life which has been, generally speaking, deficient in the dexterity necessary for fraud? The story is as follows, and it has a moral, though there may not be room for that. It is a fair general rule for those travelling on the continent that the easiest way of talking in a foreign language is to talk philosophy. The most difficult kind of talking is to talk about common necessities. The reason is obvious. The names of common necessities vary completely with each nation, and are generally somewhat odd and quaint. How, for instance, could a Frenchman suppose that a coal-box would be called a scuttle. If he has ever seen the word scuttle, it has been in the Jingo Press, where the policy of scuttle is used whenever we give up something to a small power, like liberals, instead of giving up everything to a great power, like imperialists. What Englishman in Germany would be poet enough to guess that the Germans call a glove a hand-shoe? Nations name their necessities by nickname, so to speak. They call their tubs and stools by quaint, elvish, and almost affectionate names, as if they were their own children. But anyone can argue about abstract things in a foreign language who has ever got as far as exercise four in a primer. For as soon as he can put a sentence together at all, he finds that the words used in abstract or philosophical discussions are almost the same in all nations. They are the same for the simple reason that they all come from the things that were the roots of our common civilization. 
from Christianity, from the Roman Empire, from the medieval church or the French Revolution, nation, citizen, religion, philosophy, authority, the republic. Words like these are nearly the same in all countries in which we travel. Restrain, therefore, your exuberant admiration for the young man who can argue with six French atheists when he first lands at Dieppe. Even I can do that. But very likely the same young man does not know the French for a shoehorn. But to this generalization there are three great exceptions. One, in the case of countries that are not European at all, and have never had our civic conceptions or old Latin scholarship. I do not pretend that the Patagonian phrase for citizenship at once leaps to the mind, or that a Dyak's word for the Republic has been familiar to me from the nursery. 2. In the case of Germany, where although the principle does apply to many words, such as nation and philosophy, it does not apply so generally, because Germany has had a special and deliberate policy of encouraging the purely German part of its language. 3. In the case where one does not know any of the language at all, as is generally the case with me. Such at least was my situation on the dark day on which I committed my crime. Two of the exceptional conditions which I have mentioned were combined. I was walking about a German town and I knew no German. I knew, however, two or three of those great and solemn words which hold our European civilization together, one of which is cigar. As it was a hot and dreamy day, I sat down at a table in a sort of beer garden and ordered a cigar and a pot of lager. I drank the lager and paid for it. I smoked the cigar, forgot to pay for it, and walked away, gazing rapturously at the royal outline of the Taunus Mountains. After about ten minutes I suddenly remembered that I had not paid for the cigar. I went back to the place of refreshment and put down the money. But the proprietor also had forgotten the cigar, and he merely said guttural things in a tone of query, asking me, I suppose, what I wanted. I said, cigar, and he gave me a cigar. I endeavored, while putting down the money, to wave away the cigar with gestures of refusal. He thought that my rejection was of the nature of a condemnation of that particular cigar, and brought me another. I whirled my arms like a windmill, seeking to convey by the sweeping universality of my gesture that my rejection was a rejection of cigars in general, not of that particular article. He mistook this for the ordinary impatience of common men, and rushed forward, his hands filled with miscellaneous cigars, pressing them upon me. In desperation I tried other kinds of pantomime. But the more cigars I refused, the more and more rare and precious cigars were brought out of the deeps and recesses of the establishment. I tried in vain to think of a way of conveying to him the fact that I had already had the cigar. I imitated the action of a citizen smoking, knocking off and throwing away a cigar. Then the watchful proprietor only thought I was rehearsing, as in an ecstasy of anticipation, the joys of the cigar he was going to give me. At last I retired baffled. He would not take the money and leave the cigars alone, so that this restaurant-keeper, in whose face a love of money shone like the sun at noonday, flatly and firmly refused to receive the two pence that I certainly owed him. And I took that two pence of his away with me, 
and rioted on it for months. I hope that on the last day the angels will break the truth very gently to that unhappy man. This is the true and exact account of the great cigar fraud, and the moral of it is this, that civilization is founded upon abstractions. The idea of debt is one which cannot be conveyed by physical motions at all, because it is an abstract idea, and civilization obviously would be nothing without debt. So when hard-headed fellows who study scientific sociology, which does not exist, come and tell you that civilization is material or indifferent to the abstract, just ask yourselves how many of the things that make up our society, the law, or the stocks and shares, or the national debt, you would be able to convey with your face and your ten fingers by grinning and gesticulating to a German innkeeper. End of chapter 24